Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Security Insider podcast. Continuing in the vein of things that we have been discussing over the last couple of weeks, we last spoke to uh, Professor Jody Oakman about working safely from home and how you can most effectively work from home. Today we are talking to uh, Tony Vitsa. Tony is the Director of the Cybersecurity Advocacy ISC Squared in Asia Pacific. Tony is also an IT security expert and is going to talk us through some of the do's and don'ts and issues around companies having staff working from home and the security related issues around that. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. So I guess... uh, This is a bit of a hot topic at the moment because a lot of organisations have got staff working from home, obviously due to the the quarantine restrictions. The question is, you know, in this current threat environment, you know, what sorts of problems are we looking at? I mean, we've got people using things like Zoom, we've got people uh, using other sorts of teleconferencing, email, they're outside of trusted networks, you know, where do we, where does this begin? Yeah, very good question. And it's interesting to note that uh, in the past, uh, a lot of discussions around security considerations have come about through what's called shadow IT. So this is where uh, IT products and services that the company doesn't officially sanction are being used. And if anything has occurred over the last uh, month or so while COVID-19 has has really uh, made its mark on the global economy is the fact that most organizations have had to embrace shadow IT purely to survive. And this has inherently caused a number of different potential issues. Some of these issues have been exploited, which I have no doubt we'll talk about um, today. Um, And as a result of that, a lot of organizations not only are trying to deal with risks associated with the global economy, but they're also dealing with cyber risks as well. Yeah. So explain for those people listening uh, what you mean by shadow IT. Yeah, so, so shadow IT is effectively the IT mechanisms that employees and staff and organisations use that aren't officially sanctioned uh, and in, in the sense that they belong outside of the official infrastructure of that organisation. Um, and if you want to, um, for a minute, think about the fact that, you know, a lot of people like to tether off their phones uh, and as a result of that, they might connect their uh, corporate laptops onto those phones being tethered. And that's an example of shadow IT where you're using something that's not officially a company issued or, or endorsed uh, to do company work. Right. Now, I imagine that's probably going to be the case in a large number of situations where people don't necessarily have great internet connections, maybe haven't been reached by the NBN yet or whatever the case may be. They're going to have to basically use whatever they can. And as it is, we're, even with the NBN, we're seeing some fairly significant slowdown and throttling back of speeds and, and all sorts of things anyway. So it's really about where can I get the fastest connection? What is the problem, though, with using shadow IT? Well, it's outside of the control of the organisation. That's the problem. And as a result of that, the organisation doesn't know what's going on. Uh, they can't police uh, any policies that are put in place to protect that organization's data. Um, and there's potential leakage as a result of that. So um, once you've got those those issues, you've got a potential for, for problems from a cyber perspective. Yeah. So then if if I'm a, a, a medium to small size business or anything above, I mean, how do I go about working around that? It's, it's difficult. I mean, there's no real uh, clear-cut approach. Um, the reality is, and this is with a lot of organisations I've spoken to, particularly over the last um, month or so, is 
I don't think too many uh, organisations or people have thought about the fact that a global pandemic would have been the cause of, of their organisation shutdown. A lot of them have thought about other uh, disaster scenarios, you know, floods, earthquakes, fires, et cetera, et cetera, the ones that we're most commonly used to. Um, but very few organisations have thought of, of potential pandemics uh, as being a business disruptor. So a lot of them have been left scrambling um, to, to work out what to best do in order to be able to, to function in, in some respects and, and in many respects survive. Um, so it really comes down to that organisation in terms of what do they do, what's their, um, what's their business, uh, how are they organised, and then coming up with a very quick strategy. Um, and and it, it's, it's a difficult answer because um, you might have a, an organisation that's IT-based, um, the organisation I work for, for example, um, we had digitized all of our um, services, you know, two to three years ago. So we, in many respects, have been quite prepared for this. But a lot of organizations have kind of viewed IT as a um, as something that, that they absolutely, you know, have to, you know, they, they need to deal with um, and they don't want to particularly deal with. And all of a sudden, when you've got people who have to work from home, um, those organizations have, in many respects, been sort of dragged kicking and screaming to, to change. And as a result of that, this is where um, sometimes poor decisions are made. And, and that's where we've got issues sometimes. Yeah. Now, uh, I mean, we're, we're seeing people using a range of things, not just internet connectivity from home, but, you know, video conferencing is another one mm. that has become quite big. What are the challenges around video conferencing? Yeah, so, so it's a really good um, example. So video conferencing has become pretty much bread and butter almost overnight um, for most organizations to be able to continually uh, function. And, and I've been on numerous video calls just today, in fact. Now, um, as any application, uh, video conferencing is an application, you need to secure it and you need to make sure that it's up to date. And we'll use Zoom, for example. So um, there's been a lot of talk about Zoom uh, around the world and, and how you know it's being used and, and how effective it is. But there's also been talk around some of the cybersecurity considerations where until recently, it wasn't enforced that you needed a password on a Zoom call. So what was happening was that companies were operating on Zoom and people were, were literally bombing those meetings, sometimes putting you know, images up that you don't necessarily want <laughs> uh, you know, business people to, to be involved yeah. with or yeah. see. Um, and that was just really just disruptive. But there's a more sort of nefarious, uh, you know, approach that could be used as well. If you wanted to perform espionage on, on a board or senior management, you know, it, it, who knows? If you've got 50 people calling, how do you tell if one of those people is, is actually who they pretend to be or it could be someone else? So um, it, it does bring in uh, not just cyber uh, considerations, but also privacy-related considerations. Absolutely. Um, now, I imagine there's probably a list of do's and don'ts for organisations that are looking at doing some of this or, or, or trying to take a more proactive approach to cybersecurity for staff working from home. Where does that begin? Because we can't all afford to have a full-time team of security people running our, our IT security for our business. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the best place for all organisations to start is looking at the Australian Signals Directorate Essential 8, which are, are eight steps that the federal government uh, here in Australia uh, has suggested to organisations that should be implementing as essential steps. Those steps include things such as making sure that you're updating uh, your software, you're updating your applications, you're um, ensuring that you don't have applications that you don't need installed so that they don't present a potential vulnerability, making sure that you disable um, 
plugins and APIs for applications that you, uh, such as browsers, browsers that you don't need or you don't know, uh, making sure that you back up your data so that if you do have any form of, of uh, crypto or um, ransomware type attack, then you can recover from it quite effectively. And we've actually seen over the last couple of days hospitals in the US that have been hit by ransomware, which is the last thing uh, any hospital right now would need. Um, to disrupt them. So um, there are a bunch of, of um, steps that organizations can implement. My suggestion always comes down to um, assume that the people that work for you have good intentions, but uh, let's say are not cybersecurity experts and they need to be walked through things such as making sure that their Wi-Fi has a reasonably strong password, making sure that things such as two-factor authentication is turned on wherever it's available, um, making sure that even education around emails, email phishing campaigns, because we know that email phishing uh, is one of the, the biggest vectors for cyber incidents to begin with. So making sure that organizations and, and individuals within those organizations are educated in that is going to be highly valuable for that organization. Yeah. I mean, strong passwords is always an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's it, it's one of those ones where if we all practiced... it, To me, it's kind of like airline security, you know, if you wanted the perfect airline security, we'd all fly naked everywhere we went and uh, we'd have no problems and we wouldn't take luggage with us and we'd all have no problems on planes. Password security is kind of similar in that in an ideal world, we should be using highly complex strings of alphanumeric keys that are changed every 30 days and different for every single service and site that we visit. Reality is that isn't going to happen. So, you know, is there a system that people can use that's better or, or worse for, for things like password management? Yeah, absolutely there is. So the concept of a passphrase is something that, that uh, comes up quite often. So rather than thinking of traditional, you know, eight-character password with a special character, think of a passphrase or a saying or something or other that you as a person can remember. It can be as long as it needs to be. Um, assuming that the system that you're using it for is able to accommodate that many characters. And that's where sometimes the challenge actually is. Uh, I was registering a website uh, on a website uh, literally this morning and I tried using 10 characters and a, and a special character and it said, no, you've got to use eight characters. <laughs> so yeah. sometimes you do run into those sort of difficulties. But um, if you can think of passphrases, they're generally uh, a much easier to remember uh, type of security. And of course, if you can turn two-factor authentication on, then that adds an extra layer because it involves you, um, by, not so much bypassing, but, but you being aware of, of your password, but then also being in possession of a token that's issued by that, that provider that you also must know to be able to, to get through and, and access. Okay, great. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I've heard a lot of people talking about in the past is active monitoring of systems. So, you know, you can install software or whatever it may be that's going to constantly work in the background to determine what might be a scam email, what might be a breach attempt. I mean, how does that work? Yeah, so so that can look uh, at a, a number of different um, areas. So you can obviously um, look at monitoring of, say, your network to identify if there's any um, unauthorized access or there's anything sort of untoward happening on a network. There's also active monitoring of vulnerabilities. So this is where an organization deploys a system that uh, looks at all of its IT assets and determines whether they're up to date, whether there's any um, administrator accounts that have default passwords set up, and it manages uh, those 
vulnerabilities and informs that organization to say, look, you've got these vulnerabilities. This is how you remediate them. And we strongly recommend on a basis of one to 10 that you, you action those. Um, so there are a bunch of different areas. I mean, you can, as an organization, you can monitor anything and everything. It's a, a case of, uh, as with traditional security, how many security guards are you going to have sitting there watching cameras? Um, it's the same thing with, with uh, IT and cybersecurity. If you want to monitor everything, you need to have people there to physically watch everything that's going on, and that can present a fairly large cost overhead. Um, so it really depends on how the organization um, values its information. If it's incredibly valuable, it'll probably need to deploy a significant number of active monitoring resources. If its information is not as valuable, then there's still credit card numbers, personal information. So um, it'll need some level of monitoring, but it depends on the organization itself. Yeah. I guess one of the questions uh, a lot of people might be asking, and I apologize for jumping backwards a step here, but you know, there's a lot of software out there that offers to manage passwords for you, whether it be LastPass or KeyPhrase or KeyVault and all, all those sorts of things. I guess the question that I would ask is usually what we do is we use these pieces of software to put in all the different passwords that we use for every different site and every different banking service because, you know, that's what we're meant to do. We're meant to have a different one for everything. That's the smart way to go. And these software services collate them all, but then we have one master password for that piece of software. That kind of seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. But if you think about it, say, say on a phone, for example, and I use a password manager uh, with a very unique password that has in no way, shape or form any relevance to me or my family or my pets or anything like that, um, that I save all, all my passwords within that password manager. You need to obtain that phone from someone, first of all, physically to be able to, to, to break into it. You need to get into that phone you need to know their password or, or have their face to be able to, to get in. And then you need to know that password. It does seem counterintuitive in the sense that you're saving every single password in um, a single location. And if that were to be compromised, you'd be in significant amounts of trouble. That being said, it all becomes a, a situation of what's the most appropriate thing for you. Um, and it, it's always going to be a very difficult answer. You can write all your passwords on a notepad, for instance, on a physical notepad. And if you leave that lying on your desk, well, then it's no better than, than you know, <laughs> um, going onto Facebook and, and publicizing your password that way. So it really comes down to um, what are you trying to protect? Uh, what levels of protection are you putting in? Um, the same way that, you know, a bank would, would uh, with its gold, would put it, you know, in, inside of a bank vault, inside of an alarm system, uh, protected by security guards, protected by a high fence. You're putting, uh, you know, differing layers of, of security there, defense in depth. That's what you're doing with passwords in that instance. Yeah. Now, I imagine with most organizations, having in place things like two-factor authentication, um, you know, passphrases instead of passwords, understanding what may or may not be a scam. You know, even even what we were just talking about then with password managers, the last thing you want is if you've got 10 stuff or 20 stuff or 50 stuff, everyone using a different password manager um, because some are good, some are bad, some are in between. So I imagine there's going to be a, a certain degree of vetting that you want in place as an organisation to say, this is the one that we want. So this all comes back down to policies. You can't enforce and you can't monitor and you can't manage what people haven't been told they need to do. So how important are policies in these sorts of environments from 
what you can do to what you can use and where you can use it and so on. It, it is a very big challenge because, you know, how do you tell a, a group of people who are working in, you know, a hundred different locations um, how to enforce a policy? Um, and this is where it comes down to um, really from an organization point of view, what best works for that organization. If you're a IT uh, type organization, it's much easier to enforce these things through um, policies such as need snow basis uh, and lease privilege. Um, there's no reason why a, a staff member who doesn't require access to a particular resource should have access to that particular resource. So that can be managed centrally. By the same token, using your example around password management, absolutely. I mean, I use a different password manager to I'm sure most people in the organization. And that's where you start to tread between what is personal to the person and then what is work-related. Um, and it's a difficult conversation. I don't think I've got an answer <laughs> specifically yeah, yeah. Um, to that. But um, in terms of policy management, again, it really needs to come down to understanding uh, people's behavior, understanding what works for that organization. Um, and, you know, as I say to a lot of people, a lot of organizations right now, people, are, are, of course, want to work and they want to keep their jobs, but they're also trying to deal with making sure they don't get sick, making sure that they're not, um, you know, coming, uh, becoming victims of the pandemic from a health perspective. So people's attention's diverted. And this is a perfect environment for, for people like cyber criminals to make the most of. And this is where sometimes it's very difficult to reinforce the message, but we have to, because otherwise we're, we're going to have a lot of problems as we're starting to see already. Yeah. Now, I imagine one of the biggest challenges we're going to see uh, during an environment like this is people needing to get access to information from the office from remote locations. And as such, you're going to have people saying, well, we're not set up for that. We don't have remote access installed. So we're just going to use things like um, uh, Team Viewer or whatever it may be. Uh, I mean, what are the security risks around remote logins and, and especially around those remote logins not being properly managed? Yeah, it's, it's a major, major problem. Um, uh, so RDP, Remote Desktop, um, Team Viewer, and these sorts of um, services will inherently punch a hole through an organization's security for people to be able to access resources remotely. And as a, as a, as a, a, a what happens as a result of that is you've got uh, cyber criminals who will exploit that typically speaking, and they're not specifically looking at you as an organization and targeting you. Um, let's say personally, they're looking for vulnerabilities out there and the moment they can sense one, they'll jump in. Um, how do you manage remote login? If you don't need remote login, get rid of it uh, altogether, disable it altogether. If you do need remote login, password protect it, put two-factor authentication in where you can, um, and potentially restrict the login from very specific um, IP addresses so that you can actually say, okay, if it doesn't come from this IP address, which is um, it's like system administrator's uh, static IP address, you're not allowed to log in. Um, there are ways to secure it. Um, and it really comes down to making sure that the organization minimizes that risk as, as much as humanly possible. It would seem to me from a, a lot of what we're talking about that for the average organization, even if they can't afford to have a full-time IT security manager or even a part-time IT security manager, uh, they probably need to have at least uh, an IT security expert come in and do some sort of risk audit and, and provide a, a bit of basic advice to get them going. Absolutely. Uh, and, this is, and this is the area that I've traditionally worked in, um, is IT is such a broad area. It's, it's equivalent of saying, you know, IT is like medicine. Um, Cybersecurity is a discipline within that. And 
to expect for an organization to expect that a person who is IT savvy is also able to configure their cybersecurity as well um, is, is, in my view, quite a difficult one to accept. Cybersecurity is very, very niche, and the requirements that come with that and the risk management that comes with that is not something that traditionally is done from an IT perspective. As a result, most organizations that are large enough will have one or a number of cybersecurity certified people. For those that, that don't have one or might not be able to afford one, um, as you suggested, John, my suggestion is uh, consult with a, a someone who's qualified, certified, and can advise the organization on a, on a consulting capacity to be able to assist them and say, these are the things that you should do to be, to be order, in order to be able to uh, minimize that risk as much as humanly possible. Training and awareness. I mean, it's it, when we're talking about training and awareness in this kind of environment, especially when everyone's already working from home, it, it's it's kind of like parking the ambulance at the bottom of the hill as opposed to, you know, sticking it at the top of the hill. Um, but surely something's got to be better than nothing, even if it's just doing online webinar type stuff. I mean, what's your view on training and awareness to get people up to speed? Yeah, um, it's it's difficult. It obviously makes it much more difficult when you do have a, a workforce of people that are working in remote locations. Um Training and awareness. So if you look at most scientific studies around behavior, um, anything that's taught today generally has a longevity of about 30 days, and then it starts to fade significantly in terms of that retention from there. So a cybersecurity training and awareness program needs to be something that is, is taught and then continually refreshed. You've also got a challenge when it comes to making sure that people don't just view it as another compliance exercise that they need to tick and not actually draw any knowledge out of what they're doing. So most organizations do need to look at some sort of training and awareness package for all of their workers uh, around cyber hygiene. And this is making sure that, you know, they're not acting in, in any way, shape or form, um, let's say um, either accidentally or inadvertently um, damaging the organization from an information security perspective, but they do need to do some training and awareness. And, um, now is obviously a time that is crunch time in terms of many organizations, but even now is where we're seeing so many um, instances of, of cyber breach that organizations need to keep that front in mind when they're, when they're uh, working with their, their team members and making sure that they're doing the right thing. And one of the examples that I use is most people have a, a network at home, they have a router at home. Um, chances are most people who are not in IT haven't updated that router's username, password, firmware, or any of the settings with its wireless in years. Um, and, and chances are that that's the case. Chances are in those times, they've probably given that password out to numerous different people. Um, so it's just reminding individuals within that organization that these are some of the steps that you should take to make sure that cyber hygiene is practiced. Sure. So to bring us towards the uh, the end of this, because we're getting close to the half hour mark, if you had to sort of offer your top four or five points for individuals within organisations to to get them through most of the challenges that that this environment's going to present them with, what would they be? Uh, my first one would be update your software, update your operating system, make sure that everything that you have is up to date. Uh, if you are managing IT resources for an organization, make sure that your employees are updating or force updates as much as you, you possibly can. Make sure that as an organization, you are backing up your data. Um, back it up three times, you know, uh, back it up in an offsite location once, because in that way, if you do have any cyber related um, issues, 
then you can recover from that reasonably quickly. Make sure that your staff are getting um, awareness training, cybersecurity hygiene training. We talked about that um, a little bit earlier. I don't need to go into too much detail around that. And fourth, um, keep in mind that cybersecurity is, is a discipline unto itself. It is quite a comprehensive area and the attack vectors that come in are from multiple different areas. We don't just look at the traditional hoodie hacker. We're also looking at accidental breaches for someone sending an email of confidential data out, which is a, an accidental act. We look at privacy as well. And as a result of that, because it's so varied, it's always good to get an expert involved to be able to assist that organization and give them some advice and guidance on how to manage some of these issues, particularly now with so many staff members working from home. Yeah. And and just to finish on that aspect of people working from home, um, are there basic obvious things that people often tend to overlook? For example, I know that with physical security, one of the biggest gripes that most installers have is they'll go out and people will buy cameras or buy systems and they just use the standard admin that's on the camera at the time when they bought it. They don't change anything. Are people's yeah. homes any different with their Wi-Fi networks? Absolutely, absolutely. I uh, A couple of years ago, I presented to a, a fairly large multinational board and I, I put up a photo of a, a cable modem from some of our large telcos here. And I said, how many of you have one of these at home? And half the room's hand went up. And I explained to them that that particular device um, had remote access enabled and it was using the same password for all one million of these devices that were deployed around the country. And I asked these people, I said, and how many of you take your laptops home of an evening and do work at home and connect up to this thing? And that half of that room's hands went up. So um, that introduces a very big risk um, for people who are sea level, but anyone who's dealing with personal data. Um, as a result, what you need to be mindful of is, is knowing um, when was the last time you changed your password on your router? When was the last time you updated uh, your router's firmware? Because the, the reason why router's firmware is updated is because vulnerabilities are picked up and then fixes are introduced for that. When was the last time you updated your Wi-Fi password? Um, when was the last time you updated your operating system? How many times has your phone flashed at you asking you to update you know, iOS or, um, or Android over the last couple of days and you've said, no, I'll do it another time? Update your devices because it is absolutely critical. Um, and of course, doing the, the what I would call common sense things, making sure that you have endpoint security, making sure that you have backups, making sure that you have email filtering if you're an organization so that at least you're providing some level of protection um, from potential malware. Can I ask some what you mean by, things. sorry, Tony, can I just ask what you mean by endpoint security? So by endpoint security, we're talking about um, what people would traditionally call Norton antivirus. So we're talking about making sure that even on Macs, you have some sort of endpoint type security product that looks at the network, looks at what's coming in and leaving the computer and making sure that you're not running any viruses, bots or anything along those lines. Yep. Okay. And and finally, my last question, um, you know, we hear a lot about virtual private networks or VPNs and those sorts of things. There's, there's software versions, there's hardware versions. Uh, I mean, uh, are they worthwhile? Is it hard to do? Is it expensive to do? Is it something we need to do? Yeah, it, it, it's a good question. Um, if you have a company, uh, let's say you're, you're given a company-issued computer uh, and that's managed by the organization, VPNs are highly valuable because you can log in and, and work as if you're working from your office. Um, if you're given VPN access onto a personal device, then that can introduce a whole bunch of uh, problems because 
if you're connecting uh, an endpoint a computer, for instance, that's infected and got issues, by connecting up to that VPN service, you could be infecting the rest of the network because you're, you're connected virtually to that private network. Um, so it really comes down to making sure that um, organizations evaluate that risk and determine whether it's appropriate for them or not. Many organizations these days are, are almost, uh, they're not so much a shooing uh, VPNs, but because of um, programs such as Office 365, where they can work remotely and not need VPN, but have security enabled as part of that, um, a lot of them are actually not even needing VPN services. So it, again, comes down to the appetite of the organization. What does it need? Um, and what does it want to provide its employees? Great. So just uh, to recap in closing, uh, you know, go and look at the Australian Signals Directorate, you know, top eight things to do. You mentioned that earlier. Yeah, have a look at those strong passwords and potentially put in place passphrases instead. Where possible, uh, make sure we've got two-factor authentication enabled on all of our devices and hardware and software. Understand or educate staff about you know, acceptable IT security practices, the do's, the don'ts, what a scam might look like and have in place some sort of monitoring. And if you need it, get some sort of professional help to get the basics in place. Is there anything there that we need to uh, add in closing? I would add one more, which is assume um, user, uh, the approach that people have been using in terms of um, social distancing and, and washing your hands implies that there's no trust uh, you know, from a, from a medical perspective that, you know, you might have touched a, a coronavirus uh, bug and therefore by washing your hands, you're going to kill it. Take that same assumption on a cyber level. When you get a text message from someone that, that sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Anything that you do, just make sure that um, you, you implicitly don't trust it until you have reasons to trust it. That includes emails, that includes text messages. And if you do that, then at least let's say your shields are up um, to make sure that you can block as much as you can without inadvertently clicking on something you shouldn't click or, 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 you know, actioning a text message that ends up being ransomware, for instance. Tony, thank you very much for your time. It has been a pleasure having you on the podcast. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to know more about this, don't forget to go and check out the Australian Signals Directorate. There are other podcasts in this series. If you missed the last one with Jody Oakman talking about how to develop a uh, good work practices from your home office, then visit the ASIO website. You can get the podcasts from iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry, uh, and all the other good locations. And we look forward to speaking to you next time around. Thank you very much. Thank you, John.